Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage coming to you from the ANU and I'm Mark Kenny, of course, from the School of Politics and International Relations and the Australian Studies Institute. And of course the election's on and there are gaffes already. We've seen mistakes from both sides, but particularly from uh, the leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese, in relation to uh, the cash rate and in relation to the unemployment rate, uh, this has been jumped on by the media and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, there are very mixed feelings about this out there. Uh, many people are saying on talkback lines, on texts, on social media that they think this is appalling superficiality by the media uh, and that uh, it really doesn't reflect well on the nature of the debate. I guess to some extent I'd say twas ever thus, that is the way it is in election campaigns. They are highly theatrical, theatrical and, and kind of symbolic in lots of ways and not, not the best place to uh, be having deep policy discussions because it gets obscured in all this, uh, all this uh, nonsense in a sense. But it has happened before and we've seen leaders on both sides make those kinds of errors. On the plus side... Nobody usually remembers what happened in week one by the time you get to about week three or four of a campaign. There's so much noise and, and, uh, and, and tumult in an election campaign that, uh, you know, it seems when you get to about that later in the campaign, what happened early on seems like it happened a year ago or so. People just forget it. Having said that, the government's not going to let voters forget it completely. They had social media ads out straight away showing Anthony Albanese not being able to uh, say the unemployment rate at four percent. It was a bit of a surprise because of the, uh, the, the that being such a central issue of the budget that unemployment was now down to four percent, uh, and uh, that in fact uh, programmed in the budget or projected in the budget to go to three point seven five percent, and some say even lower than that this year. So it's a central feature of the government's economic success story. It says, and given that it's running this line that. 
Anthony Albanese is untried, untested, hasn't held an economic portfolio, uh, their main strategy had always been to try and suggest that Anthony Albanese can't be trusted and his team can't be trusted managing this economic success story. So it was a little bit surprising that uh, on the very first full day of campaigning, um, Labor fell at this hurdle, particularly on the unemployment rate. The cash rate perhaps uh, a little less uh, significant, partly because it's not actually the interest rate that people pay. It's the it's the official rate set by the Reserve Bank, and it is at a record low of 10 basis points or 0.1%. Anyway, the government's seeking its fourth term. That ought to be a big issue, and there are so many concerns about the way the government has performed over those three terms, so many, so much scar tissue that the Prime Minister himself is carrying. So perhaps the election campaign will get down to some more serious stuff as we proceed on. We'll just have to wait and see on that. With me in the studio today is Dr. Charles Miller from the School of Politics and Industrial uh, International Relations also. Uh, he's a political scientist. He's also an expert on security and foreign and strategic policy questions. Uh, so we're going to be talking to him a bit later, mostly about Ukraine. How are you, Charles? I'm doing fine, thank you. Yep. Great to have you back. Thank you. It's been a while. Great to be back. Uh, yeah, there's some very, uh, very interesting things happening in, in your fields of expertise, so we'll certainly come to that. And, and we may, in fact, hear from you uh, in this uh, first section, because in the first section, we're going to talk to Evan Eakin-Smith, who is the Australian Electoral Commission's Director of Media and Digital Engagement. Uh, welcome to you, Evan. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's terrific to have you on. And I, I wanted to do this, and thank you for being available, because I wanted to do this because, you know, I've just been talking about politics, not an area that you need to go into or will, or will be wanting to go into, but uh, but the Electoral Commission is absolutely crucial. It is the, the you know, the, the mechanics of our democratic process and what you, uh, your organisation does uh, is, um, you know, is, is deliver us these elections so Australians can exercise their democratic right and indeed obligation under our system uh, and the Australian Electoral Commission is you know has a very high standing uh, no one it's not like the US where people complain that there's you know political interference and there's all kinds of irregularities and all kinds of inconsistencies state to state so it's been a success story but of course you're uh, putting this election together you've had plenty of time to think about the election coming up but uh, these are anything but normal times uh, so you've no doubt done a fair bit of planning, but tell us what, what, what happens now that the starter's gun has been fired? What does that mean for the AEC? Uh, well, to put it short, it means a really busy time. Uh, we've been planning pretty much since the Ritz return for the previous federal election in 2019. And whenever I say that, I think people uh, balk a little bit and they say, really, do you really need to do that? But it is one of Australia's largest peacetime logistical events. When you add COVID on top of that, that yeah. overlay makes it incredibly complex. And COVID's changing rapidly still. Uh, polling day, even though election's been announced, polling day is about six weeks away. What the COVID environment looks like at that time, we still don't know. So uh, it's a massive exercise. Uh, as soon as that starter's gun went, we look to confirm our staff. We need 105,000 staff. Uh, we become one of the nation's largest employers albeit for a very short period of time. Yeah, so that's not 105,000 people for the six weeks, but presumably it's not just on the day either. 
No, it's not. So the vast majority are just on that single day where we have around 8,000-odd polling places in operation. But we have hundreds of early voting centres that will be operating from the 9th of May. Uh, we need to staff them, of course. Um, we also have the count period after which, which can last, well, for the Senate, it lasts quite a long time. Uh, we will return the writs on or before the 28th of June. So it's, it's a long process. Uh, and we've had materials managers and a range of other roles working for us in the lead up to the announcement of the election as well. So busy times at the AEC. Yeah. Um, Look, I'm just going to jump ahead uh, because of something you said just toward the end of that answer then about the writs returning for the Senate on the 28th of June. That is the reason. It's just worth dwelling on that for a moment. That is the reason why the 21st of May was the last time that a a half-Senate election could occur, which is the normal accompaniment to a House of Reps election in our system, isn't it? That you needed that period of time in order to uh, to do that count and return those writs and therefore have those senators ready to take their place on July 1. Yeah, that's right. We have hundreds of millions of preferences marked on Senate ballot papers and they all need to be recorded, validated uh, into the system before we can distribute preferences. That's not a small task. We've got human eyes on that process through the entire time uh, and we transport our ballot papers to central facilities. It, it doesn't happen uh, in a matter of days, um, and probably we'll be butting right up against that deadline of the 28th of June to get Senate rich returned. Yeah, it's a really complex process. The Senate's a different counting system from the reps, and, uh, and uh, of course, it's not where government is formed, um, and so we don't really hear about it on, on election night. It's not the, not the critical issue on election night. It's who's got, the, who's got the majority in the House of Reps that will be able to form a government, but, of course, it's utterly crucial thereafter in terms of how that government uh, – can enact its program or not, as the case may be. But it's um, yes, it's, it's it's like it's like all the sort of busy work goes on for you, or busy work's the wrong way of putting it. All the intensity goes on for the electoral commission, and I guess nail biting for the parties and those uh, senators that are that are sort of going up and down in what can be some 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 very drawn out counts, very drawn out preference flows that. I think in the ACT, for example, it, someone told me the other day it took 39 rounds of counting for Zelja to finally be uh, elected as the second ACT senator at the last election. So that's a lot of, a lot of recalculation. Yeah, and that's the ACT Senate ballot paper, which, of course, is quite a deal smaller than Yeah, most. quite simple, yeah. Mm, yeah, we often refer to election night as the halfway point for the AEC, and it really is. Uh, the count is a long process. It's a complicated process, uh, not just in the activities that we're doing, of course, of counting ballot papers, but also the transport, the logistics. We've got something like 40,000 different transport routes that our ballot papers use to get back to their home electorates to join counts. So it's a significant exercise and security is obviously front of mind when we're doing all of that. Yeah. So let's go back to uh, the other another point you made in that first answer about COVID. What are the changes you've had to bring to bear as a result of uh, COVID as, in as much as we know it to date? As you say, there could even be changes between now and polling day, but uh, COVID's obviously uh, changed the way we do lots of things. Uh, is it basic things like, you know, hand, hand sanitizer at the, at the booze? I'm sure there are many other things you'd, you'd have to take into account. No, it is basic things for the most part. So it is hand sanitizer and some of the simple things. Speaking of just hand sanitizer, we'll have 63,000 litres of the stuff. Wow. Yeah, not to mention 34,000 bottles of surface cleaner and we'll have dedicated hygiene officers using those to wipe down 
not just surfaces but pencils in between use. Are people encouraged to bring their own writing implement? Is that is that possible or is it uh, still going to be the AEC pencil approach? Yeah, we'll encourage people, uh, but uh, we'll have 4.5 million pencils this time. We normally have about 100,000, uh, and that's to make sure that people can use a clean pencil, of course. Right. Uh, and so we expect the majority of people to be using those. And and what about other measures? I mean, one of the things that's been a feature of COVID for just about every aspect of our lives has been the slowing down of processes, uh, you know, st- keeping your distance, uh, people taking longer to, 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 uh, to do things because they're, you know, they're checking in and these sort of things. Obviously, people aren't going to have to do QR check-in at the polling booth, presumably, but the uh, South Australian election, I noticed there were um, there was some commentary on the night. I was watching the ABC coverage and Tom Kutzentonis, uh, one of the uh, senior Labor people, front benches ministers now, was uh, complaining that the queues were enormous at some of the polling booths, presumably because uh, people were taking longer to go through the process. I'm not sure why that would be, but uh, is that an issue that you need to take into account? Absolutely, it is. Look at simple things like ordering a coffee if you've got a mask on. Uh, That can be lost in translation. Yeah, Not to mention, yeah, we've got a complicated interaction there. I'm glad to hear that you're going to be offering coffee at the polling station. (laughs) That'd be nice, wouldn't it? No, (laughs) uh, democracy sausages and cupcakes only, uh, I'm afraid. (laughs) Yeah, and that's Um, afterwards, right? Oh, yeah, you've got to vote. Voting yeah, is yeah. the most important yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but um, things like masks can slow it down. You mentioned QR codes. Uh, they won't be in place unless there's a local health direction for them to be. Yes. Uh, we, we really rest on the local, local health restrictions for things like QR codes uh, and whether or not voters need to wear masks. All of our staff will be wearing masks and we've made it a condition of employment for our staff to be vaccinated as well. Uh, in terms of queues, um, it potentially will slow down the process. Uh, we're very fortunate in Australia not to be seeing scenes like what we see internationally where people are queuing nine or ten hours. That won't happen. Uh, I don't think that would be palatable. Uh, the AEC would be in a world of strife. But you might see some decent queues at some polling places uh, and we ask people to be really patient with that. And what's your message there? Is Don't leave it to the last minute, I guess. Uh, you, you'll be wanting to say that quite a lot. Um, so that there's uh, an, an even flow over the day rather than getting to the situation where you've got, you know, 200 people outside a polling booth and it's five to six or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be running a significant campaign. Well, we already are, but we're talking about enrolment at the moment. Uh, but we're going to be running a significant campaign in advance of the voting period to encourage people to plan their vote. Look at your circumstances this federal election. Uh, if you're a, a, a shift worker and you might be working on election day, for instance, if you work in a setting where you're more vulnerable to COVID, you might want to plan your vote during that early voting period to make sure that you can access it. That question about enrolment, you say you're focusing on that in the early part of the campaign. That's obviously critically important. How many new people come on to the roll each time for an election? Do you have that figure or, or sort of roughly at hand? Uh, yes, I do. Um, so the electoral roll is sitting at about 17.1 million, uh, which, I mean, it's always the highest, but that is the highest. Yeah. Uh, that represents about 96.5% of the eligible population, which, again, if you look internationally, uh, it's remarkable. Um, in terms of new people to the roll, uh, the roll's grown by about 600,000. But that doesn't represent the new people, the new cohort, uh, first-time voters, both youth and new citizens predominantly. Uh, it represents about 1.2 million. 
because, of course, in between election cycles, you get people dropping off predominantly because they're deceased. Right. Uh, so, yeah, about 1.2 million uh, first-time voters. Uh, so it's a lot of people who are new to the electoral system making their choice for the first time. Yeah, and how long have they got from uh, where we are now? We're at, you know, effectively day two of the election campaign, uh, recording this on a Tuesday. Monday the 18th of April at 8pm local time, wherever you are around the country. That's the enrolment cutoff. Um, that 1.2 million figure of other people. So one who week. Are, yeah, one week. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that 1.2 million figure of the people who are already on the roll. Uh, if you look at youth, uh, and it depends how you define it, but if you look at 18 to 24 year olds, we estimate about 85% of that age cohort are on the roll. So that's that's a gap from the 96% more broadly. So there's a lot of young people who still need to get on the roll. What's the rule with people who are about to be 18? Is there, is, is there any leeway there if you're going to be 18, um, you know, within a certain period of time or do you have to be 18 by polling day? You've got to be 18 by polling day. So if, if you're turning 18 on the 21st of May, you can celebrate with a vote and a democracy sausage, but you'll have to be Even a beer. Role. Uh, well, that too, yeah. But you'll have to be enrolled um, yeah. by the close of roll. So if you're 16 or 17, you can always provisionally enroll. Right. That, I suppose that's the way I should have framed a question because that's the point, isn't it, really? If you're going to be 18, you need to make sure you're enrolled and you can do that provisionally before you're 18. Yes, that's right. And we have a number of people who do that in any case, not just on the doorstep to an election, but it's obviously particularly pertinent at the moment if people have a birthday coming up. Right. Just another couple of quick questions. Um, early voting. Uh, it was a big issue at the last election because there was an extended period for pre-poll voting. Uh, I, I know the parties got quite antsy about it. I remember opining on this myself and uh, sort of making the argument, which I think is pretty persuasive, which is that we're one of relatively few countries that has compulsory voting, which I fully support. But it seems to me the quid pro quo for that is that we ought to, if we're putting that obligation on people, a right and an obligation, uh, that we should also make it as convenient as possible. But the parties, obviously, they want to campaign right to the end. They want to, uh, um, you know, they don't want to have sort of have half the, some significant slice of the electorate having cast votes before they even got around to unveiling, you know, perhaps their, their biggest uh, advantage uh, leading up to polling day. They're geared towards, uh, you know, most people voting on the day. It is a reduced period this time compared to last time, is it not, for pre-poll voting? It is. Uh, it's a two-week pre-polling period. Last election, it was three weeks, and that's actually a result of legislative change that yeah. Parliament did in this electoral cycle. You talk about access to your vote and compulsory voting. Um, uh, compulsory voting uh, is probably one of the predominant things that contributes to the fact that we do have 96.5% of people on the roll and 90% of those people, or I think it was just under 92%, uh, who turned out at the last election, and hopefully it'll be higher this time. And we do go to significant effort that's not seen overseas. You know, our remote mobile polling program that we deliver in remote areas of Australia, uh, the overseas services, uh, residential care facilities, it, even Australians in Antarctica get their vote. So uh, it, it's really a festival of democracy that we try and facilitate and access is right up the top of that. And a big challenge has been in some of those northern electorates, particularly in uh, Northern Territory, where there is... Um a deficit, if I can put it like that, of people who are eligible to be on the roll but who are not. Is extra effort going into getting those people on the roll? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Northern Territory enrolment rate is a little bit lower, as is the National uh, Indigenous enrolment rate. 
Uh, but we've seen growth in both of those areas over the last five years, which we hadn't seen previously, which is really pleasing. Uh, no one's going to be pleased until that gap is closed. Uh, but Indigenous enrolment nationally at the moment sits at around 80%. Uh, it's grown in the last five years since 2017 uh, from 75%. So uh, that's that's really pleasing, uh, but we need it to get higher. So we, we've got about 70-odd partnerships that are in operation across Australia, and that's been leading up to the federal election to engage Indigenous Australians uh, educate them about the voting system and and boost enrolment, of course, because uh, it's all about participating. Yeah, we we think with that pivot to our partnership model that we did about five years ago, it's coincided with that growth. So we're pleased with that, uh, but it's it's ultimately a, a generational issue that we're tackling here uh, with Indigenous participation in the electoral system, and we can't do it alone. So we'll we'll continue to endeavour to make good strides there. Uh, and and look to the broader community to uh, help out and, and not to mention Indigenous Australians themselves to jump on the roll and, and turn out and vote. Terrific. Our final question, will there be any differences to counting on the night? I'm not suggesting that I know of any, but um, sometimes this has been the case where uh, rural votes used to be counted you know, early. I'm not sure whether that's always still the case. So sometimes those early counts wouldn't necessarily be representative. You'd be getting a lot more smaller booths in from some of those electorates that have rural and metropolitan or urban votes. Are, are there any of those kinds of differences that uh, people watching the count on the night should keep an eye out for? Not really. There's been some minor legislative change that allows us to start opening some envelopes earlier than 6pm, uh, but, it, but it really is just allowing us to keep pace uh, and unfold some of those unwieldy Senate ballot papers a little bit early. We don't count anything until 6pm. You will see those smaller regional polling places flow through first. Uh, we count everything that's cast on election day, on election night, uh, and we also count the vast majority of pre-poll votes that night as well. Hopefully, we'll get an indication of who forms government off that. Uh, if we don't, people might have to wait a bit and we'll start postal votes on the, on the Sunday afternoon to give a bit of a trend there. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Evan Eakin-Smith, thank you so much uh, for being on Democracy Sausage. I think it's a really important service to be able to come on and talk about uh, you know, the logistics of, of our electoral process, which is something we should all defend and celebrate. Oh, thank you for having me and thank you for defending and celebrating it with me. That's uh, encouraging. Uh, we'll uh, we'll go to a break and be back in a moment. We'll talk with uh, Dr. Charlie Miller about Ukraine and other things. Cheers. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. 
Charlie, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Ukraine. Before we do that, I probably, probably should tell Democracy Sausages this bit of exciting news, at least the ones who are in the Canberra region, and that is that um, we've got a few things that, that we're sort of tossing around to uh, really um, step up our engagement with the election itself. Uh, that was really useful, having that discussion about the uh, the logistics of, of the election. Some people might find it a bit dry, but it's really important to uh, – um, you know, just know how you know how the election is going to be run and what it means and uh, when people need to be enrolled. And I hope that you know there might be some people who are listening. I, I guess people who are listening to democracy, to democracy sausage are, are so enlightened they're already enrolled. But <laughs> but you know they might be able to encourage someone they know that uh, isn't enrolled to get on the roll. And you know voting's a you know it's a it's a it's a right. But you know compared to um, other countries, it's a great <laughs> privilege too. Uh, and uh, so yeah, if it gets people on the roll and. Uh, uh, thinking about uh, how they can, you know, engage with the election and and all that—that's a good thing. One of the things we're going to be doing that we're going to be doing next week, uh, we hope. Uh, there's still a few. It's a bit of a TBC situation, but it looks like we're going to be able to do a live democracy sausage next week here on the ANU campus in Canberra. We hope, uh, and that will be a really interesting event. Hopefully, we'll get a good audience and we'll have a bit of fun as well mm. as maybe even a maybe even a shandy or two, um, <laughs> and uh, um, and have a bit of fun talking about the election. I've got a couple of uh, really top line names that I'm talking to to. to uh, Make that happen, Maria. Uh, Maria, obviously, Maria Tafaga, who's uh, on most weeks, not here this week, unfortunately, but um, certainly Maria will be back, and and a couple of others that I'm not going to say now because I haven't confirmed with them yet. But uh, I think anyone who listens to Democracy Sausage or takes an interest in in Australian politics will be wanting to hear from these people as well. So. If you're anywhere near Canberra and uh, with the thing of doing this on Wednesday, the 20th of April uh, at about 6 p.m., I think is the time we're talking about, we will put out more details about this when we've nailed them down. But, um, yeah, if, I think if you're connected to ANU, but if you're in Canberra or the region and you can get along to it, it hopefully will be informative and fun entertainment as well. So there's that. Um, now, let's get to much more grim matters, and they are much more grim. Um, you know, we're talking about democracy and 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 the the fun of elections, as well as the important issues that are there. But nothing fun or entertaining about Ukraine at the moment, is there? Not at all. This is an area that you have uh, expertise in, uh, strategic policy and uh, and and defence and security issues as a political scientist, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a fascinating area. And you know, it's just terrible to think that um, the the world order has has broken down. We've got a P five member, a member of the permanent five of the Security Council, engaging in a completely unlawful invasion of another country. This is not news, of course. It's been going on for a long time now, uh, since twenty fourth of February. Mm -hmm. And there was a long lead-up period, or at least it felt long at the time, mm -hmm. lead-up period to it. Where are we with it now? Well, where are we with it now? Look, um, the Ukrainians, I think it's, it's fair to say, have won the Battle of Kiev, um, which is incredibly encouraging for anybody who supports democracy um, and believes in um, believes in human rights and believes in the peaceful resolution of disputes. Mm -hmm. um, the Russian um, original maximalist aim of toppling the government and um, installing their own puppet government um, has failed. I don't think they're going to try that again. Um, and I think we have to really give enormous credit to the Ukrainian government and to the Ukrainian armed forces and people um, for this victory. I think it's, it's fantastic. So, so Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky, who was who was struggling domestically uh, as a as a president 
has performed extraordinarily well in rallying his nation, but also in rallying the international community. Yes. Uh, I mean, he hasn't got sort of foreign forces in there, but he's got just about everything else. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a lot, I mean, an incredible, sorry, an incredible level um, of support from other countries. I wouldn't say he's got just about everything other than foreign forces. There are still some things um, that he's not getting, and there are still some countries that are dragging their feet. Mm. Cough, Germany, cough. Um, well, that's interesting that you say that. So so what what is, I mean, Germany has significantly changed as a result of yeah. this conflict. It's suddenly announced that it's doubling its defence budget. It'll mm-hmm. probably go further than that, I imagine, now that it's broken away from that kind of uh, long mm-hmm. uh, tail after the Second World War, its mm-hmm. pacifist stance, or it's, you know, it's a, essentially leaving defence to others. It's now going to be much more assertive in that regard. It's sent... Uh, it sent funds and arms to... Yes, it has. Yes, yes. Especially um, what's called the Panzerfaust anti-tank weapon. Um, actually, the, the same name is the same type of weapon that the Germans used to great effect during the Second World War. It's also called against the Panzer. Against the Russians. Against the Russians and against the Western Allies as yeah. well. Um, so they've sent them anti-tank weapons. Um, they're dragging their feet a little bit about sending them actual tanks, however. Right. Um, and also they're dragging their feet about um, bringing about a full-on embargo of Russian um, oil and gas. Um, so, I mean, these are the two kind of things that Germany's dragging its feet on right now. Um, with respect to Germany, sorry, um, j- just to say with respect to Germany. So we've heard this before that, you know, Germany had this post-war um, kind of pacifist tradition um, about, you know, driven by their guilt about the war. Um, in some ways, it's not quite true because Germany contributed very extensively to NATO and to NATO forces during the Cold War. They never obviously fought, but they were certainly prepared to fight. And they were a very important component of NATO's defence um, against um, the Soviet Union. After the end of the Cold War, um, you know, this is this is when you know people talk a lot about Germany's kind of pacifist tradition. But again, um, with the Kosovo War in 1999, this was the first time that Germany had actually participated in a war, um, in any kind of fighting at all since 1945. And this was seen as being some kind of a turning point, driven by a revulsion at Milosevic's genocide of first the Bosnians and then later the Kosovo Albanians as well. So many people saw that as a turning point in German um, defence policy, but it turned out not to be. Um, I think in part because um, over the course of the war on terror, the Germans um, began to believe, um, I think with some justification, that events in Afghanistan or the Middle East were not directly um, relevant to German security. And they thought that they'd built up a good relationship with Russia based on trade such that they would not have to really pay serious attention to what was going on um, in Eastern Europe. And so they allowed a lot of the Bundeswehr, that is the German armed forces, capabilities to atrophy, especially its heavy capabilities like armour, aircraft and so on. Um, So um, whether this will actually result in a a genuine long-term shift towards Germany having a more heavily armed posture, actually not so much going back to what it was like prior to the Second World War, but actually going back more to the role that it played in the Cold War um, as being a major kind of bulwark of Western defence against Russia. So it's um, not about it's not seen. just about self sufficiency because because mm. 
Germany's not going to be in a war on its own. No, no, not at all. Uh, But it's about contributing more assertively to NATO's defences and and being more self-sufficient in its own defence. Yes. And more responsible for holding up its end, holding its end of the log. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Germany is really important for a number of reasons. So first of all, I mean, obviously, the United States is also trying to cope with the rise of China. And ultimately, the rise of China is a bigger long-term challenge to the United States than Russia. Um, but that's not to but say the that rise Russia, of Russia is a bigger the, long-term the threat to Germany. Germany, absolutely yeah. right. Um, so um, the hope amongst many American policymakers is that if Ru- Germany does more to balance against Russia and Europe, then the Americans can switch their attention to um, the Asia Pacific, and that's something that so Elbridge Colby, um, who's an American um, strategist, um, who's written a very interesting book about how the United States should respond um, to the rise of China, um, wrote an op-ed in a German newspaper saying, "Look, Germany needs to do more in Europe because the United States can't. The United yeah. States has to focus on Asia and the Pacific." It's really interesting. Just sorry to interrupt your flow there, but it's really interesting to think about how Trump used to complain about yeah. Europeans not not right. you know, not paying for their own defense. Yeah, and you know really pointing the finger at Germany a few times. And I guess he had one thing, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, broken clock is right every... Well, yeah, that, that that's true. And I mean, the, the thing is that France already does quite a lot um, in terms of... So out of the EU's member states, it's the most militarily formidable. Um, Britain does quite a lot um, as well. Um, the smaller European countries, I mean, the problem is that um, collectively they might be able to do um, quite a lot. So if you put together the military capabilities of Denmark, Italy, um, Belgium, Czech Republic, and so on, it might come to quite a lot. But for each one of these countries individually, they have what you would call a collective action problem. So, mm. you know, Denmark increases its military spending to like 3% of GDP, let's say. That's a big sacrifice for Danish policymakers who have to raise taxes mm. or cut spending on something else. But in terms of how much it actually adds to the defense of Europe against Russia, it's not very much. Sort of small, yeah. Yeah, so all of these countries have big incentives to free ride on the bigger countries. Um, and so therefore, um, what, you, what you have to really have in Europe is to have some big country that's going to step up and do the majority of the lifting. And that used to be the United States, but increasingly the United States can't do that anymore, which is why you know the rest of Europe is looking more to Germany to do that. Yeah, and of course, as you say, France doing uh, doing its bit, or at least uh, doing a fair amount, and Germany's the actually the largest economy in Europe, yes. isn't it? So yeah, 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 there's that expectation. The other thing that's been interesting in a sort of a geostrategic sense about all this is that those sort of neutral states uh, have started talking about being taking a much more yes. uh, positive defence posture. Yes, yes. Finland's applying to join NATO, I understand. Yeah. Um, and Sweden will um, quite likely apply to join NATO as well. So this is a yeah. this is a pretty big deal. You know, Putin's worried about being encircled by NATO. And so he um, invades Ukraine, which has the consequence of him being even more encircled by um, NATO than he already was. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a, quite a um, spectacular strategic blunder on his part. Yeah. And yet he remains the uh, the holder of the largest nuclear arsenal in That's terms right. of warheads, mm-hmm. uh, which is a concern, yeah. It is, it is a concern, yeah. Because um, he's not 
hopefully sane. Oh, right. <laughs> well, look, I, I, so I, I actually had in a column in the Australian um, a few weeks ago and I spoke um, on Sky News about this issue. There's all of these kind of stories about Putin. There's sort of bizarre things like the Daily Mail in Britain was reporting he'd been in this bizarre ritual where he'd sacrificed a wolf to some ancient Siberian god to see whether he was going to be healthy or not. And so I don't know how much to believe that that kind of stuff. Um, there's you know, stories about how he's been increasingly isolated because of COVID. He's paranoid about getting COVID and so on. And all this kind of speculation, you know, like, has he changed? Is he going crazy? And so on. I tell my students in um, foreign policy analysis um, that it's very difficult um, to make those kind of judgments from afar. First of all, because um, any leader's um, public persona is a careful strategic construction designed to portray the image that they want to portray. So in Putin's case, um, you know, he, he maybe wants Western countries to think that he's maybe a little bit irrational, might go a little bit too far because that, you know, intimidates them and prevents them from helping Ukraine in ways that would harm um, Vladimir Putin. And also, I mean, it, it was an enormous strategic blunder that he made, but... And, and, and sorry, because it was an enormous strategic blunder, that prima facie mm. uh, lends to the argument that he's not particularly rational right well this I mean, is this is what i would get this is what i would um this is what i would dispute so he made a mistake but the point is we know with the benefit of hindsight that it was a mistake but if you look at it at the time mm. so before he was preparing the invasion what would you have said all right how did the, how did the international community and how did the ukrainians respond when he took crimea and sent russian forces into the donbass first of all um in 2014 when he did that the ukrainian army folded very easily they scarcely fired a shot so putin got what, what he wanted and you know um, the best okay like past performance is not a, a certain guide to future performance but it's not bad either um, and so you know he had reasonable grounds to suspect that the Ukrainians would fold quite quickly and if the Ukrainians had folded quite quickly um, then you know what would the international response have been it probably wouldn't have been um, as fierce as it has been you know there would there might have been some more sanctions um, but you certainly wouldn't have seen say Germany taking the action um, that that it's taken. You know, yeah. Putin had spent a long time, invested a lot of money building this kind of web of connections of you know party leaders that he had, um, you know that he who had that he'd kind of cultivated that sympathised with his worldview, or and just politicians that he you know just through straightforward greed just managed to pull into his into his sphere. You know, Gerhard Schroeder, the former Chancellor of Germany. Um, was given a um, position on the board, I believe it was Rosneft, the Russian um, oil company, Francois Fillon, former French prime minister. You know, these, these he kind of brought these people in mm. who he then thought could, you know, um, could basically um, blunt the impact of any kind of backlash, you know, against Russian policy. And, you know, in the UK as well, all of these oligarchs, you know, Lord Lebedev and so on, um, who had donated to the Conservative Party, had um, close links with the Conservatives. You know, he thought that he could rely on this kind of network of influence to shield him against, you know, a Western European backlash against Ukraine, which he thought would fall anyway. And, I mean, in, in, in advance, ex-ante, I don't think that you can that you can say that it's irrational for him to think that that was all going to work. What he didn't reckon with was the resistance of the Ukrainians, the leadership of President Zelensky, um, which I think prevented the war from turning into a couple of days walkover and allowed um, resistance to mobilise. 
True, and look, I I plead guilty to that to some extent myself because I remember writing that uh, you know the uh, Ukrainians were going to be vastly outnumbered and uh, you know it was an asymmetric contest and so forth. So I certainly plead guilty in the sense of that. But uh, th- th- there've been plenty of military adventures, uh, you know, that I can that have happened in our lifetimes times yeah. that that have just not gone anything like uh, they they should have in terms of the the prejudgments on, mm-hmm. based on supposed strategic power you know uh, military strength and ukraine itself of course is 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 the is the battleground where where napoleon uh, you know sort of reached a, you know reached an impasse and 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 was defeated um where Hitler the, as well where yeah exactly barbarossa when the, with the germans uh you know and and for some of the same reasons i mean uh, um the russian tanks were forced onto narrow roads because they couldn't uh, mm. couldn't go across fields because the the ice had thawed and the mm-hmm. fields had thawed and the mud everywhere and so forth i mean these are sort of basic things mm. that he must have known were was 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 likely to slow down his advance he also seemed to attack on a number of quite a number of fronts mm-hmm. And 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 what was the plan in the end anyway to occupy a country as people keep saying the size of France uh, and with forty four million people to occupy it sort of indefinitely? Well, see, Putin thought that he wouldn't have to occupy it because he thought that he could basically install a puppet install government. a puppet government who would have a lot more legitimacy amongst the Ukrainian people than um, would actually have been the case in reality, right? So uh-huh. that he seriously misjudged. In terms of sticking to the roads. Um, from what I understand, the reason why they were sticking to the roads was so that they could get it done as quickly as possible. Um, so mm, they stick okay. to the roads and they try and get into Kiev but as fast as they possibly But they did have those massive traffic jams. Yes, they did, exactly. Yeah, and no, they that, had, that was, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, incredible logistical incompetence. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that his decision-making apparatus was very good. I, I don't think that he's irrational in the sense of being, um, I don't want to use kind of stigmatizing language, but quote unquote crazy. Mm. Um, I think that there are serious problems with his decision making apparatus in that people are not willing or able to tell him things he doesn't want to hear. I think that's a fair, yeah, um, yeah. I think that that's a fair critique. So if you look at the, the the meeting. If you saw the the pictures of that meeting that he had, um, that was televised in Russia, the one where his, the cabinet was about that's twenty right. or thirty meters away. <laughs> right. from well, him. he was getting these guys to come up, yeah. and he's getting um, he's getting the head of the FSB, so the guy who's organizing the poisonings yeah. worldwide, coming up, and the guy's terrified and mm. he's like, stuttering, and Putin's just bullying him. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you you look at that kind of um, environment, and you think, you know, is this the kind of environment in which somebody's going to say, actually, I think there are some problems with this operation. Plan. I don't think that I don't think it is really, and you see this with a lot of dictators. You know, they're um, they're they're not really willing to listen to people who tell them things that they don't want to hear. Yeah. You look at the decision making of Saddam during, mm. um, you know, his wars. You look at the decision making of Hitler, mm. Stalin. Um, yeah, no one wanted to give different. them bad news. Yeah, no one wanted to give them bad news. You know, look at that scene in Downfall yeah. where they're trying to tell Hitler that you know his counteroffensive has failed. Yeah, um, they you know this is this is the problem that you know senior generals and intelligence people have when they're in a dictatorship. Yeah. Um, so I think that yes, there were a lot of flaws in the operational plan, um, which if they'd had a really robust process where people were prepared to actually tell him things he didn't want to hear, that might have been flushed out. Yeah. Um, but you know that's different from saying that Putin himself is an irrational yeah. um, actor. Yeah. You know these are things that flow from the nature of the autocratic system um, that he was that he was working in. I think. But also, he might end up being cornered into further irrationality, and that's actually a, a concern. 
one of the things going to this, uh, all of these problems, what that flows from it, presumably, is that uh, they have now he has now appointed a new military commander because there was a sense in this. I don't know whether you agree with this, but I saw some commentary that uh, one of the problems, one of the reasons for all of these problems we've just been talking about, is that they didn't really have uh, proper centralized sort of military strategic. Mm. Uh, overview of everything of that they were doing, and he's now appointed this guy Alexander Devornikov. Yep. Um, how significant? Well, I mean, it is significant given Devornikov's previous record. I mean, as long as that, I think it's, it's either the butcher of Chechnya or the butcher of Syria or perhaps the butcher of both. Or the butcher um, of butcher. The butcher of yeah, butcher of everywhere. Mm. Really, I mean, he's. Um, um, a terrible human rights record, um, but I mean, it seems like they didn't really need Dvornikov in order to grossly abuse people's human rights in the areas that, that, that they occupied. I, I don't think that having a, a single overarching commander is, or a lack of a single overarching commander or axis of advances is exactly what's caused the Russians' right. problems. Um, I think that the problems actually lie um, with the sort of the, the organization of their armed forces, the morale of their armed forces, ethnic divisions within the armed forces. Forces, um, the, some of their their doctrinal problems. So the Soviet, oh, sorry, the the Soviet military was very top down, highly centralized, command and control type military. Um, you did not do anything unless you got approval from the higher ups. You didn't do anything unless they got approval. So it was very very slow and sluggish. Most analysts of modern warfare recognize that that's not a good way to fight under modern conditions. You have to give the lower um, echelons of the army, from privates all the way up, a significant degree of latitude to use their own initiative in order to fight well. And the Ukrainians have done this very well, but the Russians haven't. Um, the Russians have really kind of struggled with- The only leeway warfare. they apparently give them is to abuse human rights. Yes, yeah. uh, pretty and much. They, and yeah. they did that in the Second World War as well. Yeah, That's exactly. has been yeah. a, sort of a feature of Russian armies for a long time. It has. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. To throw yeah. numbers at it. Mm -hmm. and to be utterly ruthless. Yes, to be utterly ruthless, exactly. I mean, many of the, the stories are horrific stories that we're hearing coming from, from Ukraine. I heard some of them and I thought, you know, this this can't this can't be true. This must be some kind of propagandistic mm. claim. But then I hear that, you know, the, they've actually been pretty well verified, yeah. a lot of them. Um, and this is very similar to what the Russians did when they captured Berlin in the Second World War. But I mean, in terms of the, the actual deficiencies in their army, I think this top-down centralized command and control system, poor morale, um, especially ethnic divisions, the Russian army, over-recruit from um, non-Russian ethnicities um, disproportionately, um, who are treated very badly in the Russian army, very badly in Russian society. They don't have very much of a desire to fight for Russia um, in the same way that ethnic Russians um, might. Um, and so, you know, all of these problems are all kind of coming together. Um, and faced with a Ukrainian military that's actually improved a lot since 2014, um, they're causing lots and lots of Russian setbacks. Um, and so it may have helped them somewhat to have a more unified centralized command structure. But um, I don't think that's where the main problem lies. And so now we see they're supposedly withdrawing to the east to be more concentrated. Mm -hmm. Does that mean, and you started off saying that you think the Ukrainians have won the Battle of Kiev, but does that mean it's all over? I see some reporting today uh, from, I think, Chechnyan sources saying that they still intend to move on targets around Kiev. Um, that, 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 that's possible, but 
um, I think what the Russians are doing now is they are um, attempting to make a move on the Donbass. So, I mean, if they were attempting to and make to Mariupol, a, just to Mariupol, pulverize yeah. it. Yeah, to, pulverize it. I mean, the, the idea is so there's a, a salient, so basically a, um, a little kind of bulge right. of um, Ukrainian-held territory um, in the east of Ukraine, um, which um, is contain which contains a substantial proportion of the Ukrainian military. The goal of the Russians, perhaps, is to cut this off yeah. and then produce a kind of a mass surrenderous or you know destruction of Stalingrad yeah. yeah Stalingrad type operation mm. and um this I think is what the Russians um, are moving to do if the Russians were looking to um move significantly on Kiev again I think it would be quite easy to spot so I mean one thing we've seen in um this um, war is the rise of OSINT, so open source intelligence. People yeah, can download uh. satellite imagery and um, really high resolution satellite imagery for free or for very low cost. And they can look through and actually see where the Russian tanks actually are. Um, so I don't think the Russians would be able to conceal it if they were actually trying to, um, attack Kiev again. Um, it seems more like, um, you know, the, the Russians, um, are moving their armor and concentrating in the Donbass. Yeah, right. Um, now, we're, we're getting close to time, so I want to just go to a couple of sort of domestic implications or, or domestic dimensions of this, uh, Australia and France. Mm. I see that France has uh, today or in the last 24 hours expelled some diplomats uh, claiming they're spies, including I think the second in charge of the Russian uh, okay. uh, embassy or mission in um, in Paris. That's um, caught up, I suppose, in the French election. It has that domestic uh, um, you know, dimension to it because I think Marine Le Pen, who uh, Emmanuel Macron is now uh, going to sort of race off against in the in the in the uh, um, in the final choice for for the French electorate, she's seen to be close to Putin, mm -hmm. or closer. Macron himself has kept uh, dialogue with Putin going more than most other leaders, but it's that's an interesting development. Yeah, and of course Australia. Sending more bushmasters, we've been sort mm -hmm. of progressively stepping up our our uh, involvement or our assistance to Ukraine as well, and um, and that's I guess got a domestic uh, implication with our election as well. You know, we hear, hear reference to the Kharki election and so mm -hmm. forth. Just your thoughts on those two? Yeah, so those two things. Well, first of all, um, so I'm not really an expert in um, French politics. You maybe want to speak to, you know, Patrick Dumont, um, our colleague. Yeah, yeah. Um, he'd be a good guy to speak to about this. But having spoken to him, um, yeah, I mean, Marine Le Pen is a real worry because the French polls for the second round are pretty much neck and neck. Um, I'm not sure how reliable they are as well. There's evidence that the pollsters are herding. Um, that is that they're not kind of producing independent information mm. but trying to stick around the mean. Um, so there is a very real chance that Marine Le Pen could win. And if she does, that's a big, big problem um, for the Western effort against big Russia. France, I would imagine. For, for France, absolutely. Yeah. For, for um, ethnic minorities in yeah. France, it's and terrible. And for European and leadership, for Europe, actually, oh, absolutely, because, yeah. I mean, Macron has really oh, yeah. inherited Merkel's oh, um, yeah. mantle as, you know, the yeah, sort of dominant. I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a terrible thing to mm. contemplate. But, I mean, you know, the, there's, there's a pretty substantial chance that it would happen. We're mm. looking at, you know, sort of Brexit, Trump type territory. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Zemmour, um, who's even more extreme than Le Pen, has dropped out. Told, yeah, he's been knocked out. Yeah. yeah, knocked out, told his supporters to vote for Le Pen. But Mélenchon, um, on the left, 
um, there's a substantial proportion of his supporters who probably will not vote at all um, and are not going to give their votes to um, Emmanuel Macron. Um, so this Side is a, shades of Bernie Sanders is a, yeah. a supporter. Oh, but, of- but even more, I mean, even more so, you know, I mean, even more so because I mean, you know, most of the Bernie people did come around to Hillary in the yeah. end. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, Mellenshaw it might be um, an even an even bigger issue. So that's definitely one to watch. Um, I'm I'm quite concerned about it to be honest. Now, um, you know, um, Macron has produced posters showing you know like a split poster with you know Marine Le Pen's face on the one side, Vladimir Putin's on the other. Um, certainly, um, you know, if it is a they of Ukraine is at all salient um, to the French public, then, you know, he could really just hammer home that message that voting for Le Pen is voting for Putin. Mm. But having said that, it's a very similar problem to what the Democrats had um, in the United States with Trump. If they hammer on Russia, 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 then that seems may seem to some voters like they're ignoring domestic yeah, exactly. um, concerns. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like right? an so, elite concern rather than the cost of living exactly, stuff. And, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I don't I, I don't know enough about French politics to see how productive that strategy would be um, for Emmanuel Macron. So, I don't know. I know that, you know, French opinion is generally in favour of Ukraine. I've seen there's lots of French yeah. people volunteering to fight in the Ukrainian military and to give um, charitable donations and so on. But, I mean, you know, to what extent that's actually going to move people's votes in the presidential election i don't know probably have to speak to patrick Dumont yeah. about that yeah. um in terms of australia here i mean um i think it just underlines to the rest of the world you know that we we thought that big great power um conventional warfare was a thing of the past and we didn't have to worry yeah, about it anymore yeah. you know like we'd, we'd had a long period of peace um, in, in the world. And Bear Brownmuller, who's a American political scientist, he's looked at the, you know, the, um, the, the, the data about great power wars. And he says, look, let's assume that you have a, a big, huge world war every hundred years or so, right? That, that's the kind of baseline risk. Well, we've gone for like 70 years without the last one. Um, is that a long enough period to conclude that this sort of baseline one every hundred years risk has changed? It's not, mm. you know, it's as if like, you know, a, um, a bus comes along every 50 minutes and we're at four, the 40 minute mark. And we think the buses aren't, aren't coming anymore. We wouldn't think that. Um, so, you know, it's a real, it's a real concern. Great, a great power war could very well be um, on the way back. And if that's the case, then, you know, that has really important implications about, you know, how Australia, um, Australia's policies in a lot of areas, you know, how we structure the ADF, how much we spend on defense, mm. but other things too. But what are our trading relations like? You know, do we yeah. continue to be so heavily dependent on trade with China? Do we continue to be so heavily dependent on fossil fuels? Do we try and move towards, um, you know, the sort of renewable sources of energy that we can actually, um, you know, source right here in mm. Australia? Mm. Um, so I think there's big conversations that need um, that need to oh, be had. You're if absolutely that's the case. right. You're absolutely right. And look, frankly, we could talk about this for a long time. We should. We could talk about, and I think we should come back and talk that about some great. of these yeah. issues yeah. Uh, uh, in uh, in, a, in a, uh, a subsequent episode of Democracy mm. Sausage. Perhaps we'll do it after. Uh, after the election, maybe yeah, we'll get yeah. to it before. I don't know, but um, yeah. yeah, look, there's so much to talk about here, and thanks so much, Charles, for yeah, you're welcome, spending yeah. some time with us today, being back thank on Democracy you. Sausage. Yeah, thank you for having me back. And that's it for the program for this week. As I said uh, just at the start of the half, um, we are hoping to have a live episode next week. If you're in Canberra, uh, you can get along to that. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm, I'm hoping that it will be a lot of fun as well as informative. And uh, watch the podcast being recorded. Uh, until then. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 